0: it's bourbon blog live and i've been inviting some of my favorite people every night and these gentlemen really are two of my favorite guys Uh, in in the business it's ralph and gabe Orenzo, the father and son team you all may know them uh, for starting hudson whiskey i got some of that right here uh years ago and there's so many other great things they're both doing now uh, from the liquid mercantile to the Speakeasy Motor American Whiskey Company. I'm going to have him tell you all about it uh, in this uh, hour or so. But first, a welcome to Ralph and Gabe. How are you guys doing? Good to see you.
1: Great, Tom. Thank you.
0: Yeah, hey, it's it's great to have you both here. And uh, well, I guess we should start off. Uh, there's so many places we could start. We could. I guess we start off with a drink, though. How does that sound?
2: Sure. You, it, we, it looks we, like you've
0: got my favorite there, Manhattan Rye. That's right. I do. I do. I have a Manhattan uh, rye cocktail here and uh, sipping on some of that. And what do you have there, Gabe? I've got
1: some of the uh, Speakeasy Motors American Whiskey, which is a uh, rye whiskey that I've been producing with uh, a great fabrication studio local to uh, Gardner Liquid Mercantile. It's a rye, a high corn rye, so almost a bourbon, but it's a rye, and it's all New York State. Uh, been going really well and tasting delicious.
0: That's cool. And, Ralph,
2: are you are you sipping on anything there? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm trying to keep my hands off of it tonight. I, I had, I had plenty last night. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. He's sporting his distillery man shirt. And, uh, so look, well, there it is. I like it. I had a, I had a telemore do shirt on all day today and I figured I should probably change it for this.
0: <laughs> hey, I, I did a little wardrobe change earlier too. So uh, I wasn't wearing this all day, but I wanted to make sure I worked for you guys. So, uh, so the cool thing is, as I was talking about with, I think it was uh, Gabe a little bit earlier um, on the kind of the pre-chat, I've always said this, and it, you know, it, it's it Hudson, you all, you know, hold a special place in my heart and in the life of Bourbon Blog because you guys got started with Hudson whiskey right around this time we launched bourbonblog.com, right when craft spirits were growing, and you all, um, you know, just really grew that, and it, it, you, you made a big impact on craft. Um, maybe just give us, I mean, I think everybody knows the story, but maybe whoever wants to jump in, just give us a little background on, on how it all started and how you guys got together and decided to do something called distilling, you know, 15 years ago. You want me to <laughs>
2: um, Actually, I, I remember those days. Those were the early days when ADI was the only game in town. And uh, and all of us knew almost nothing about what we were getting ourselves into. Right. Um, and, I, you know, for for our part, I know Gabe was in uh, at SUNY New Paltz at the University of New Paltz when I started the distillery project with Brian Lee. Uh, right. we, we were just, we were less than novice. We really learned from scratch on the job. And that was, I guess that was one of the big things that sort of set our character in place is that we really were very... Hands on, do it ourselves. We can figure this out. And uh, that always it worked very really well. And then Gabe, when he finished at the university, he, he came over. He first went to New York for a while and worked down there. And then he came back and started working with us, building the place. Excellent. Yeah, I wasn't
1: at SUNY New Paltz when you started uh, the distillery project. That was years after I had left there but ah. I was down in the city i went through a couple different production jobs and was working at a, a media and marketing company and um left there to come up and help help my dad build the uh, build out the distillery and and build the brand. I think I came on right before we sold our first aged whiskey but you guys had been, you know, operational at that point for um about a year I think. So
2: yeah, and then and then when uh when we sold the Hudson brand to William Grant and Sons they hired him away from us and sent him on the road for, what, three years, Gabe? Uh, yeah, three years. And uh, he won brand ambassador of the year in the very first year. Congratulations. 2012,
1: man. yeah. American whiskey ambassador of the year. Well, I still have, I still have that barrel head somewhere around here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they made
1: you, you know?
0: What was it what was it like in those early days when i mean you all been one of the first uh i mean there were some right but one of the first like bourbons outside of kentucky and people were saying what is craft distilling what's this bourbon coming from from new york all about what in those early days what was it what was it like and what was the uh what was the connection that you made and what really helped um you
2: form that uh that fan base and that that you carried on well it It's interesting that you should start off that with uh, the business about bourbon only being made in Kentucky, because it got to a point where when I was out selling the first whiskeys we made, I used to carry the standards of identity, the TTV document that defines all alcohol for the U.S. I used to carry it around in my pocket because I invariably somebody in the room would say, you can't make bourbon in New York. And I'd say, well, let's look at the rules. And I would pull the rules out. I ended up leaving a lot of them with bartenders so that they could answer the questions that the patrons might've had.
1: But yeah, Um, starting early on, a big part of it was you driving around the Hudson Valley, selling out of the trunk of your car, jumping to the the line of the the sales reps because you were sort of hopping around saying, I actually made this, I made this, you know? And I mean, there was a funny story. I think that when you had the very first batch of baby bourbon the entire batch was in your car, which at the point was maybe, what, two and a half, three cases because they were coming out of those three gallon barrels and uh, looking for the places that it should be seen, where it should be had because it was, you were making so little. Uh, and he literally Googled best whiskey store in New York and uh, Linnell's came up, right? like, That was that was the process. It was like, where am I gonna
2: sell this? I don't know, let me Google it. Yeah, I, I uh, picked up the phone and called Linnell, and um, I told her I was making bourbon in the Hudson Valley, and she got a good laugh out of that. But she did invite me down, and uh, she bought the entire first batch. It was 128 bottles, and she she still has bottle number one, by the way. Really? Yeah, yeah. And that's
0: and it's not been not been cracked. It's a collectible. I guess I suppose
2: you should put it on the. Uh, Craigslist or something. I don't know.
1: <laughs> As of a few years ago, I know it wasn't cracked. She had reached out about it a few years ago.
2: Yes, so. I spoke with her a couple of months ago, and, uh, and I was talking about that bottle. She offered to send it to me. I said, no, it's yours. Please hang on to it. Um, I didn't feel, didn't feel right about taking it back from her. Besides, I think I have another bottle number one somewhere, anywhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, wow. was a, that was an exciting time, though, because it, uh, it was all so new. You know, and there were very few other others, not just in New York State, but around the country that were doing it. There were, you know, the the, the very early guys um, and then sort of the very, very beginning of that second wave or the early farm, you know, distillers who are making brandy out in California, uh, making whiskey um, in Colorado. There were a couple that were um, right sort of right there at the at, on pace with us. But we would go to A.D.I. and A.D.I. was. 75 people or 100 people at the very first one that we went to, uh, which is now thousands and thousands of people that go to that, um, and everybody kind of knew each other, so it was it was fun, and it's fun to see the people who are still involved, or the people who had, you know, sold their distilleries or their brands and moved on to new projects, and uh, you know, sort of all keep in touch still, which is which is fun. It was fun to watch the industry grow from uh, from there to where it is now.
2: It's a real new era now. I mean, when we started out, <clears throat> you no bank would ever even talk to you if you asked for money and uh, capital investors, those kinds of folks were, th- there was no proof of concept out there. So we our timing was probably the best thing that we had uh, of everything is just starting when we did, when the field was clear and uh, it was unique enough at that time that it drew a lot of press attention and that helped us a lot. Right what what
0: triggered you all to start like what really inspired it then when you what was the thing that said okay we're going to do
2: this it was a bit of desperation actually because i had another plan entirely for the property that i bought i intended to open up a campground for climbers for rock climbers and uh the neighbors didn't like that idea very much so they sort of kept me from getting my permits for about three years and at the end i i just ran out of money i couldn't fight it anymore so trying to figure out what i could do i called the local zoning officer and asked him to come over and tell me what I could do in the property to make a living that no one could stop me from doing. Right. And he pointed out that winery in New York is a farm use. And if you're in a farm district in New York, you have a constitutional right to farm. So I started looking at wineries and uh, there were about 128 wineries in New York at the time. And uh, growing fruit in the Northeast is problematic uh, growing grapes anywhere is problematic, uh, but I noticed that there were no distilleries in New York at the time and hadn't been since prohibition. Uh, so I started experimenting at home on my stovetop with a little whistling tea kettle I converted into a still uh, and um, stunk up a house every day for about a whole winter. And then uh, in the spring, I started filling out paperwork. I figured I can do this. This is not rocket science. And I started filling out the paperwork and that's when Brian Lee showed up and we I told him the idea, he liked it, so we formed a partnership and went from there. And and as Gabe said, we were very ad hoc at the time. Uh, you know, it, it we repurposed a lot of equipment because we couldn't afford to buy new equipment. And uh, now, of course, the distillery is so much more advanced and uh, I, I don't think that I could go in there and turn the stills on now. <laughs> it's just, it's that much further advanced whereas whereas before it was just you know you turn one little wheel and everything cranks up so
1: in fact uh we just transferred from Tuttletown to Gardner liquid mercantile distillery uh the first four barrels um that were produced or the oldest barrels that ron said i don't know if it was the very first but um four there were four seven or uh 53 gallon bourbon barrels and rye there was uh two Baby bourbon, I think uh, one four grain and a a rye barrel, and they're all nine and ten year old. Um, Dad, I didn't mention it to you, but I uh, I tasted the four the ten year old four grain the other day, uh, and it was incredible. It was really unique, and it still had that very signature Hudson flavor. uh, It's a very very different whiskey when it's been in a fifty three gallon barrel for ten years, you know. So it was really cool. So we've got four. There it's in stainless now, but um, probably a, a total of maybe seventy-five or eighty gallons um, at cask mm-hmm. strength um, of the founders reserve barrels that were not part of the deal that was struck with William Grant. Those were, those were intentionally kept out. So because I have a DSP now, we were able to transfer those in bond right to my distillery.
0: Right. Wow! So that those were that was when you first started making the the Ford Green, and where was that?
2: Yeah, those were some of some of the first spirits we put up in oak, right? In in right. big oak, right? Because those were one of the first fifty-three gallon ones. Because before that, we we're using threes and fives and tens, because uh, we couldn't afford to fill big ones.
1: <laughs> we take a full week or weeks worth of work, or maybe even more at that point.
2: To uh, yeah, get- we had one one hundred gallon still, yeah. wow, and that was it.
0: Uh, and it but, that i mean obviously you you did that for for how long and then when did it change over to something bigger when was that well
2: for? we we were sort of on our own until about 2010 early 2010 right when we sold the hudson brand to william grant right and that gave us another round of press because we were the first craft brand to be picked up by a major house in the yeah. states and that plugged us into their international network of distribution and public relations and their network of customers, all that sort of thing. So um, that was what really kicked us off. Uh, but we were still out there selling it every day. I mean, <laughs> we were hardworking brand ambassadors, and that's, that had a lot to do with it. And of course, it made a big difference uh, when I was selling it that it wasn't a liquor salesman. You know, I, it, if I walk into a retailer store in the morning, and there's a line of liquor salesmen waiting to talk to the buyer or the owner, and I went right to the counter, and I said, "I'm not a liquor salesman. You know, I I, I made this, and I put the bottle on the counter. I always got this right in to see the owner, and sold it. And it was just they never saw somebody who was actually making it come through the door and tr- sell it to them. Which they is quite
1: awesome. a now. Now you get a lot of that no. um, as the small distillers are starting up. They're they're hand selling it. But I think the uh, the hundred gallon still was uh, solo until 2008. Maybe, when we got the, uh, was it a 250-gallon still or 400-gallon still?
2: Uh, still two. Four, 250, I think, was the next one, and then we went up to four. Right. The and now there's,
1: uh, now there's a couple other stills on site.
2: Yeah. Now, you know, in our first year, I think we produced about 2,000 proof gallons, and last year, Tuttle Town made... Um, 140,000 proof gallons. Oh, so it's a much bigger operation now. And and thankfully, I'm not responsible for it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing was, we started as a small business based on a farm. And we were looking at it in the same way that a lot of uh, winemakers, you know, they have the little old wine, winery down the street and the tourists go there and it, it sells in all the local stores and restaurants. And that's really what we were aiming for. And uh, we were just victims of our own success, you might say. And and, uh, and a lot of that, as I said, a lot of it had to do with the timing. You know, we were at the right place at the right time, and the field was very open for us for a number of years. Uh, we, were, we were the only ones in New York for at least at least three or four years. But uh, well, right, there was uh, I think
1: Warwick Warwick was producing um, some fruit brandies and things like that uh, maybe a year before we got started, but the first yeah. thing to be produced in New York
0: came out of settled down. Yeah. It, it's no, it's exciting to hear you guys tell the story. And I, I just want to remind everybody who's watching, definitely ask questions. If you guys have any questions for Ralph or Gabe or both of them as you're watching it, ask down below on YouTube, on Facebook, tweet back on Twitter. A lot of great people already watching and commenting. Uh, Todd Leopold, saying, so "Hi, uh, how are you?" <laughs> he's watching. It's so great to see these two giants of American distilling. Uh, so thank you for watching, Todd, and everybody who's watching. Definitely share this, like this. It's a great conversation we want to have tonight. And um, as we, as, well, and we want to get into what you guys are doing now too. But as you look back and think, <laughs> at what point did you know that this was really going to be, become something bigger? Um, at what point? At what point did you know? I mean, you obviously, from the very beginning, I remember you always were making great whiskey and it you know, and it, it aged and, and you did new things and added on to it, but what, what point was that you think for you guys?
2: Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we sort of had the feeling that it was gonna take off. And uh, we had planned on the um, press hit that we would get by being the first ones on board in New York right, and making whiskey again in New York. And so that, we could we could feel it coming on. And then uh, when grants showed interest in us, that really was a real uh, semaphore for us. We really, we, that, we sort of felt like, okay, the, they're calling us. So we must be doing something right. Right. Um, and then, and it was great to have Gabe working with us. It was, you know, uh, I think a lot of fathers are, are, would love to have their sons work with them and get along and still get along. Uh, and we were, it was, it's very, uh, it's great. And even better, Dave now has what I started out to have, a small neighborhood, popular distillery that makes a lot of goods and and, uh, sells them in his own tasting room and uh, is not really dealing with distributors or, um, you know, big time distribution.
1: And I mean, a lot of it was not wanting to be on the road anymore. You know, I had a great time I mean, Tom, we've, we've had plenty of fun out on the road together at Whiskey, yeah. at Whiskey Live and ADI and all these events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a great, a great time to, to do it. But, you know, now I've got a, I've got a family and I've got a, a, a home and I didn't want to be on the road anymore. So when the sale of Petal was, I knew that was coming, I left um, and divested so that I could open up a, a small farm facility, actually on a farm here in uh, New Paltz Gardiner area. That, um, it's a 400 acre plus farm, uh, the Dressel Farm, Dressel's Farm, and uh, I work with uh, fourth generation Tim Dressel, and he makes hard cider. I rent a small space uh, at his cidery, and there I, I have a small still that I started. I started with a 50 gallon still, and now I've got a 250 gallon um, hoga brandy still that wow. I actually got, uh, actually got from Sonoma County Distillers. Um, Adam out there, they shipped it out for me, which was awesome. And it's fun to work on that kind of still It's an alembic style, as opposed to the, yeah. the, the, the fancy that we were using at Tuttletown. But I bought a little building right on Main Street and Gardner, which is this tiny little village, and have a cocktail bar and a retail space. And the most part, I'm just filling for this place. So I tell everything here, is, you know, we do cocktails. The majority of the stuff is is stuff that I'm just filling. But then all other New York State products as well. We try and support uh, any gaps that I can't I can't fill. If we bring in um, New, York, New York producers.
0: Excellent. And and you have some of your products right there. What what do you what do you uh, what do you have there that you make?
1: So uh, I mean I, the majority of what I do and what I for the most part sell in bottles is apple brandy because that's what they've got so much of there. And I, I'm on the other side of the wall from where my still is. Is an old um, rack press. Uh, I don't forget what they, exactly what they call it, sack and rack press or something like that. I'm sorry, sorry if Tim Dressel's listening, he's probably yelling out, trying to correct me. Uh, but they press the cider right there, sweet cider, and then I bring it over and I, and I ferment it <coughs> and all that. And I'm doing a wild fermentation. I've toyed around with different types of yeast, but right now I'm doing a wild fermentation and it's working working out pretty well. Um, but I also, whenever they've got excess fruit or things that they need to clear out of their coolers, things that are over or whatever, I, I get the call, hey, you want a pallet of strawberries? Do you want um, you know, a couple of containers full of, uh, of peaches or pears, and I'll, I'll mash them myself or process them myself, ferment them, and fill them. So here I've got some strawberry eau de vie that I did, which sat in glass for about two years before I, uh, as I was proofing it down, before I bottled it. I've got some peach and some grappa. The grappa came out really nice. Um, Also working on a cool project with uh, these local fabricators who do hot rods um, and bobbers and choppers, motorcycles and uh, speakeasy motors. So I'm doing speakeasy motors, American whiskey. These guys, I'm sure, as my dad knows, a lot of people contact you wanting to, you know, they got some great idea about doing a whiskey or a brand. And um, most of the time, I just can't be bothered. I'm focused here. But these guys pounded me for a while and I really got to like them. And um, we ended up finding, you know, sourcing some barrels. So it's all sourced whiskey, I'm not making this. Uh, I don't have the equipment to make whiskey right now, I'm just doing fruit spirits and brandies. Um, and uh, the first couple batches for the most part are coming from Finger Lakes, Authority. so Brian McKenzie up in the Finger Lakes. We would go up and select some barrels and do a blend that makes it from the product that he's producing. Okay, uh, it's a high corn rye, it's really, really good. Um, also working on the school project, these guys, uh, who I'm who I, who I I'm not even sure how I came across them or they came across me, but they bought this 27-acre property right on the Hudson River. It was the old Christian Brothers Monastery, uh, and they're converting it to a, a boutique hotel and event space and distillery, and I'll be their chief distiller uh, called the Hudson House. Um, I know it's the Hudson House. It's a little close, but uh, it is right on the Hudson, and it's a, it's a gorgeous property. Um, so We'll be doing some really cool stuff, and if you want to check out that stuff, it's the Hudson House, and... Hudson House and Y,
0: Cool.
1: Uh, running hopefully, by the end of the summer.
0: Excellent, and then it'll be both a, uh, a, like a, a hotel, boutique hotel, and a distillery too.
1: Yeah, it's this beautiful old brick building that's attached to an old Victorian. You know, that was a, that was the main house of a big, um, big property on the Hudson River, and uh, has been in the the Christian Brothers have been there as monitoring school for, I don't know how long, but uh, they bought it from them and yes it's a gorgeous gorgeous properties or pictures of it on the website uh yeah and there's gonna be a they bought a a coast day uh, i don't know if i'm saying that right if anybody's listening but it's still from germany which um, should have been shipped already but you know under the current conditions probably still sitting on a dock somewhere in germany uh but it's <laughs> a 2000 liter still and we'll be producing whiskeys and uh various other spirits you know it's uh, one of the um that we can produce almost anything
0: off of. Cool. That's uh, that's amazing. So giving uh, – that's quite a few projects. And uh, the branding, the whiskey, the new project with the Hudson House. I was going to put that up on there if people want to check it out, The hudsonhouseny.com And then the uh, the other – where else can they find you on the Liquid Mercantile? What's that website? Uh,
1: liquid Mercantile uh, I I bought a a bunch of uh, URLs over the years, so you can get there a lot of ways. If you put in whiskeyny.com, nywhiskey.com, but actually the word thing is GardnerLiquidMercantile.com. LiquidMercantile.com will take you there as
0: well. If they check that out. And uh, as you were part of starting and you all uh, started Hudson and you learned uh, very early on, what you learned there and now given what you're doing how did how how is that transferred from the last 10 15 years and then you you start this distillery what have you learned and and what's it you know what's it like to now be back to the beginning of a of a small operation
1: uh, well I learned that I wanted a small operation <laughs> <laughs> um, um, no and I think I mean everything I learned working with my dad at Tuttletown mm-hmm. and with Hudson Whiskey and uh, as, as we transitioned to William Grant and uh, working with William Grant as a big company. Everything I learned there has been, I mean, I couldn't do this without that. Uh, when I first came on at Tuttletown, I was uh, learned to distill from my dad and Brian, and then very quickly we sort of turned over the keys and became chief distiller there for a while and built up a team, and then sort of shifted out of that into the sales and marketing side, right around when William Grant uh, purchased the brand, and that's when I went over. But I mean, I learned how to distill there. I learned uh, how to uh, market spirits and how to sell spirits. How to deal with computers. Um I got, in, you know, ingratiated with the with the bartender community and um, met so many amazing people. I and mean, Todd Todd's watching. I mean, I, Todd is one of my heroes in the industry. Um, you know, very quick story. I was in Colorado. I went to school in Colorado for a while and uh, was visiting my wife's family and went up in Denver and I, you know, I'd never met Todd. I don't even know if he knew what we were up to in New York. And uh, we just pulled up at the door. And this is when he was in his old smaller distillery and uh, just introduced ourselves. And he ended up spending uh, two, two or three hours with us, just tasting through every single thing he did in the middle of his day. And uh, everything was just amazing and unique and funky and cool. Um, and uh, it was just a, a really special moment. And ever since then, I, I you know, you hold a special place for my heart, so thank you for that.
2: It was an interesting time uh, early on that when we all knew each other. You know, there were maybe 15 distillers. By the time we started the Craft Spirits Association, maybe 20, I guess. And we all knew each other. We were all going through the same problems. And it was very collegial. I mean, everybody shared information all the time and helped each other out. It was it was interesting. It wasn't nearly as competitive an atmosphere as it is now. Uh, if somebody calls me and says, well, I'm thinking of building a distillery, I usually try to talk them out of it and uh, suggest they build a malt house or a cooperage instead. Uh, but at that time, we were all beginners. I mean, there were some of us who'd been doing it a little longer or had a home still for longer and um, entered it. But, you know, like like I said before, earlier, one of the problems was nobody wanted to give anybody money because they didn't believe that it was, you know, there was it was one of those. Well, good luck with that, you know, was <laughs> response a lot of the time. Um, but everybody who pressed on, like Todd and the Garrison's, and uh, you know, all, all those, I, I can't remember all the names of everybody, but it, uh, it's been really gratifying to watch them all mature and
0: yeah. watch
2: the industry mature. Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
0: And now when they walk into uh, uh, Liquid Mercantile, uh, it's the approach. To, I mean, obviously, everyone's always been passionate about um, craft products and the story, but is the approach different when someone walks in looking at what a craft distillery is and are the questions they ask different? Did, what how, does, how is the customer different now?
1: Well, I mean, here, for the most part, we seem like a bar. Most people don't realize that we're uh, a farm distillery until we start talking to them and they start asking questions. Um, we don't actually operate under, we operate under the farm distillery license and the branch office permit. So a lot of people will come in and they'll order a margarita and we have to explain to them, well, we don't carry tequila uh, because we only carry things that are made in New York State based on our mm-hmm. license. And it's amazing because we can turn people who are you know coming in for a scotch uh, or a margarita or a tequila, we can turn them on to something else and you know, convert them over. And it's amazing. I mean, you know, you get people who come in for a Budweiser or something, and we could turn them on to New York Craft beer. Uh, and people that you would think would walk out when you don't have Budweiser or um, Johnny Walker or Jimmy or uh, you know one of the one of the Johns or Jims or anything like that. Um, they end up sticking around and having a great time and we can educate them on uh, on the, the licensing in New York and how New York has been one of the at the forefront um, of the craft movement. And uh, converted a lot of people that way, so it's been pretty cool. I don't uh, my distillery. I don't do tours there. It's um, it's a farm operation, and I'm I'm operating you know sort of low key there. So this is my this is my my shop. This is, this is where people come and see us.
0: This is the experience to actually be inside the bar to have these cocktails, these drinks. Again, everything is from New York State.
1: Yep, by law. Yeah. So we don't have a liquor license. And we do have a uh, or a beer license. We did start with a beer license, um, wine license. But the laws have changed, you know, since we started. And now you can uh, serve on premise beer products under the pharmacy license as well.
0: Talk you about know. talk about that law a little bit, just for people that you know are outside of New York or even inside that that don't know about that. You know, I was gonna say All part,
1: you know, due to my dad's efforts being. Yep. So yeah, you should definitely talk about that.
2: When we started, <coughs> you could have, a, if you had, a, <clears throat> you had a distillery, you could do tours, for instance, but you couldn't give anybody a taste of anything, and you couldn't sell them anything. So in a large, in a large way, uh, if people were coming for tours, they were in the way. You couldn't sell them anything, and you couldn't let them taste anything. So um, we started out right away uh, lobbying in Albany. Uh, to try to get the law amended. Uh, And it took about two and a half years uh, of going up there regularly and really getting to know the folks at the State Liquor Authority and their councils. And um, it was introduced maybe three times and the fourth time it got signed through as law. It went through the legislature. The the big bonus of that, it was two two obligations, major obligations. One was that you had to use at least 75% New York-grown raw agricultural materials for it to be called a New York product. And the other was that you could have a tasting room. And that changed everything because that offered the opportunity for for people to do what Gabe has done and that is to flip the model over. Uh, Up until then, people were building distilleries and they wished they had a tasting room so they could sell some to people. Uh, But now Gabe's liquid mercantile model is a complete opposite. His major focus is the bar and the tasting room, and he makes the spirits that he sells there. So it's the absolute best margin you can have. There's nobody else between you and the customer. That's wonderful. And so that that has once that bill passed, um, it really took off. You know, that's when that's when people started opening distilleries. That's amazing.
0: And then, and then, are there other states that have
2: similar laws, or are looking to this New York law? Well, not they're not reviewing our model so much anymore. But for the first, I guess, until about two thousand twelve or so, um, we were getting calls all the time from other distillers in other states saying, "Would you send us your law?" Wow. And we would just refer them online to the New York laws and regulations code code of regulations.
1: But there are are numerous states now that have similar abilities under their their licenses. I know California's got um, some pretty progressive laws. I don't know exactly what they are, but um, I think that they've they've got some pretty progressive laws. Um, So, yeah, being able to sell directly to the consumer is a a huge piece of it. Uh, Not to bring people and sort of uh, have exposure to your brand. But really, that
0: that sale you know, is, uh, is a much much larger margin. That's so and that's so exciting to to, to see that that uh, that ability to um, to feature uh, all the products from one state and to uh, showcase your products. It's very exciting, and I hope other states will uh, follow suit and. Um, there any questions a lot of great people uh watching i think one of the questions i had was well let's talk about for a moment about where we are i mean of course we started this um on bourbon blanc to interview someone uh or someone's uh guests of of ours uh every night during the quarantine but since we are still in this quarantine in this time uh when you know COVID is it's still out there how do you think this is going to impact
2: um craft distillers and 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 which begin to speak to that. Well, I know that um, William Grant has uh, really been focused on keeping everybody employed and keeping the cash expenditures to a minimum during this time. Right. But they've turned over a lot of their production facilities to making neutral spirits and making hand sanitizer. As Gabe did. Gabe was the first one in the area to do it here. Uh, And actually, um, one of his clients is the county. You know, he's making this this material for them.
1: Yeah, sold about two hundred cases um, at cost, pretty much to uh, to the county, and for the most part, selling the rest out of my retail shop. But yeah, it went went through a couple different iterations. I I started making sanitizer. I think on the third of March or the sixth of March is when I had it available. And at that time, there was no I, I I had reached out to the FDA and I tried to find out you know the right way to do it, but nobody was really Answering me or giving me any guidance. So I was literally just mixing um, 75% heart apple O2V um, with aloe and bottling it and selling it. and not selling it, I was just giving it away. Um, and for the first, uh, you know, all that entire bag I gave away. Um, and then, so, you know, it, it was literally uh, look at that. That's, that is an FDA approved label right there. Apple and aloe. Not anymore. If anybody's watching, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> By the gallon, yeah, yeah, yeah. two gallons. Of it like but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have the ability to make neutral spirit with the skill that I have. So I'm actually purchasing. Um, I've got a, a connection upstate New York who uh, bought ten cubes of ethanol early on when he saw this coming. So and he's been giving it to me at cost. So I've just been, you know, I'm on my second cube right now, 275 gallons at 98 percent. Um, cutting that down to 80% and following the, the guidance that we've been given by the FDA now. Oh, and I'm also making, uh, making some face masks. Not selling them, but
0: check it out. A <laughs> <See? laughs> biggie small face mask. Your biggie small face mask. Uh, those, those are going to be like limited editions, right? Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very limited edition. i will sign them.
0: i <laughs> will sign them too. John, David, Jeffrey, saying hello to you guys. Uh, Donald Snyder. So many great, uh, so many great people watching. I think Aunt Linda's watching too. Um, so many cool people watching. Uh, so someone's asking, you know, and I think you all get these calls quite a bit about, you know, people that call you and say, you know, if I was going to do something new and different in craft distilling, what you were saying, Ralph, you would, you would suggest other things
2: than creating a distillery? Is that what you were saying? You were mentioning that earlier. Well, you know, we've now seen this tremendous um, uh, growth among distillers. A lot of them, I mean, when we started, we were the only ones. Now there are 180 or a little bit more than 180 distilleries in New York. Right. But there was nobody building barrels or malting barley. So for instance, we have to use at least 75% New York grown raw agricultural materials which means we can't make single malt. We can't make something to match, for instance, scotch to compete with that, uh, because we get all of our malted barley from Canada, because there's nobody malting barley in New York state.
1: Well, there is now,
2: there is now. I'm sorry, there wasn't then. Now there are a few small malt houses, and I think there's a medium one. I think there's a big one being built out near Rochester, but um, I think that part of the thing that's missing for the small distillery industry is that infrastructure that's focused just on them, uh, as opposed to making goods for monster distilleries in, in Kentucky or out in Indiana or someplace like that? Um, you know, small local producers of the things that distillers need so that they're not having to bring things in from the, across the country.
1: And, I, and honestly, I think that this model that I've got here at Liquid Mercantile. Um, is something that i would suggest now because of the market has i wouldn't say saturated or maybe maybe that's the right word but it's become such a sorry it's a little warm in here so I my window open i hear cars going by. <laughs> uh, you know i a lot of people there's the marketplace is is tough now and the distributors are not taking anybody that they can get their hands on like they were early on Right. So, uh, you know if you were interested in getting into the industry at this point this model works, you know, where you uh, you have a small distillery, either in a location where you have foot traffic, or you have a distillery in one location, and then you have your branch office in another, branch office being basically your, your retail, your on-premise and off-premise retail, and uh, you can make a living. You're not going to build up a brand like Hudson um, and sell it to a big company, but, um, I mean, maybe eventually you could. Maybe you could branch off and have, you know, uh, separate locations. Right now, the law does not allow for multiple Branch offices for farm Mm -hmm. distilleries. You can only have one.
0: You can only have one
1: in New York. Yes, I mean Mm -hmm. how it is in other places. But you know, uh, breweries I think can have five, or wineries can have five, um, but farm distilleries can still only have one. But you know, if you've got a small still or uh, on a farm, and then you've got your branch office in a place where uh, you've got foot traffic, like Main Street Gardener, which does not have foot traffic. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Gardner liquid mercantile is the biggest business in the village of Gardner. Yeah.
1: And but, it's not a big of a business, right?
2: <laughs> but that's, you know, that was the kind of advice that I had given people all along is that if you're, if you're out to make the next gray goose, you better have a lot of money and a lot of people backing you up and you better know what you're doing. But if you want to be the neighborhood distillery and make a living, and you know, not make a million bucks. Generally speaking, you're in debt more than anything else for a long time. But there, but it is possible to do. You don't have to. You know, we didn't invest anywhere near a million dollars building the distillery, and then we we grew as we needed to. And I have I an
1: this on credit cards and uh, you know small loan, and most of that is paid off now. So I mean it. I mean, I think actually all of that is paid off. I've racked up more debt besides that. <laughs> uh, but, but the opening, you know, the, uh, the, the building out and the opening of this place did not cost a lot of money. I mean, I, I started with a 50-gallon still, a uh, small 50-gallon still that was really a placeholder for me. It was something that I could get licensed so I could then have my branch office licensed and permitted. Uh, and then I opened up the bar and sold other people's stuff that was made in New York. While I was starting to produce products, and now I've scaled up to a you know a thousand liter still, so two hundred and seventy gallon or so still. Um, but you don't you know you don't need to break the bank on this scale. Uh, if you want to go in, in a different direction, you can. But you can really do it um, on on your bootstraps, shoestrings. Uh, right.
0: <laughs> and if you are starting a small distillery, or even if you have one, um, you know, what advice do you all have to a craft distiller or just someone who wants to do something a, on a very small level for doing something that will stand apart? Is it about tapping into local grains, uh, local themes? What's, what's wh- where should their thought process be, you think?
2: I, I think mainly uh, the, fir- the first thing you need to do is sort of own your neighborhood make sure that your goods are everywhere around you or that you have a place like Gabe does where you have a place to retail your goods and make money other than just by making alcohol. Um, <clears throat> but beyond that, it's really a lot of it has to do with the backstory and uh, how you come into the business. Although right now, like I said, I, I really don't recommend the people go out and build a distillery. It, the market's kind of saturated at the moment. Um, and of course, we're stuck in this uh, virus situation at the moment also so nobody's building anything pretty much at the moment um but now gabe's response to the uh covid 19 was to start doing online ordering of food and drinks wow. and curbside delivery nice. people come down they pay they order it and they pay for it online nobody has to touch anybody <laughs> and um he's doing okay i mean he's actually managed to stay open and, and i think that um the the main reason for that is because he could do it all himself right
1: right i, I was, my time wanted to be on this on this call this podcast this video when i'm just a short order cook i don't know
2: <laughs> <laughs> He makes great fries I do yeah well, uh,
0: next, next time we'll have you bring some fries that one, that's all right well uh... <laughs> no it's it's great to have you both a uh, question from someone and I, and i agree with this this comment um you know, New York grains, we think about different regions of bourbon, right? And I think those are becoming uh, more defined and, and maybe the flavor profiles from East Coast, West Coast. But there really is a way, and there always has been. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, your products plus, you know, Hudson. Uh, just as I had this cocktail, the, the DNA of, of the Hudson Manhattan rye really shined through. There is this this thing about, I think, New York whiskeys, in particular, Hudson that really affects uh, the flavor. How does how do grains play that role? And is there any role that the barrels play just, just in New York in general or in any
2: region as we think about whiskeys? I think that, um, well, everybody's developing their own style. Right. We, you know, this is something that was one of my favorite things to say to the staff when we were building the business and, and figuring out how to make it all work, is that I don't want you thinking outside the box. There is no box. You know, we're making it up as we go along. For us, one of the things that really uh, provided a real signature flavor in our whiskeys was that we couldn't afford to buy a proper mash ton. So we could never figure out a way to separate the liquids and solids after the cook. So we just used the entire mash. And it's the difference. It's like the difference between making a loaf of bread with highly enriched white flour and making it with a whole grain flour you get the flavor of the entire grain in the whiskey. And that was, I mean, that was born out of need. We, co- we couldn't afford to buy the proper equipment, so we had to make do. And I think that a lot of people um, in the earlier years when we were starting out, a lot of the others were going through the same thing. They were doing things, there were a lot of happy accidents, let's say. And um, and for us, that was one of them, is that we fe- we found out that the. The material coming out is much richer when you use the whole grain than if you just use the liquid.
1: And, and we, uh, you know, we I think in the beginning we started with um, uh, general corn. I don't know if it was uh, what, what type of corn we were using in the very beginning. But over the years we, we tried to expand that to unique heirloom varietals that we had local like, farmers growing for us. So, uh, you know, we would use some portion of those heirloom Corn seeds, or um, triticale, or some interesting grains, and we would you know, starting with just those, and then you know finding the right balance of um, of a typical corn versus the heirloom seed, so that we would get the, the real good starch content versus flavor profile of the unique grain. So I mean, grain I think grain and barrel play a huge a huge role in it, uh, and <laughs> I think maybe one of the main factors. Now there's a lot of distilleries in New York also that are using 53 gallon barrels, but early on, you know, people couldn't afford to use 53 gallon barrels, or so they weren't making enough. It would take a week or two weeks of work to fill one 53 gallon barrel, so people were filling, you know, five gallon barrels, 10 gallon, 26 uh, gallon barrels, and I think that that's really added uh, a unique profile compared to the traditional whiskeys of Kentucky or uh, Tennessee. So it was, it was adding a, a much more robust oak flavor. It was, uh, you're getting a much richer extraction of the wood uh, into the spirit on those smaller barrels.
0: So it's those it's those happy accidents. It's sometimes that need uh, the terroir. All those elements have gone into creating uh, what these flavors are and what the flavors in many in many regions are.
2: Yeah, I, I think that people in the early years and uh, they. They were learning as they went, as I said earlier, and, and they were making what they could, not necessarily what the market would bear. Uh, people like Corsair, for instance, who, who, you know, had the most incredible varieties of whiskey. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, and we made it out of Triticali. We made, as Gabe said, oats. I made an oat whiskey once and uh, <clears throat> spelt whiskey. But, you know, just as I said, it was because we were trying anything we could My to God. set ourselves apart.
1: And of course, Biggie Smalls played a big part in the flavor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as you know, Tom, there was there was a time where we we had speakers all around our Rick Rickhouse, and uh, right,
0: right, that's right. We
1: would play hip hop and uh, and techno. Um, it was a lot of hip hop, mostly. Sure. But, uh, that heavy bass you know we found the agitation of the spirit was was also expediting that extraction of the wood you know that
0: music was really helping that a lot
1: yeah well i mean you were getting it wasn't it wasn't speeding up maturation in any way right but definitely speeding up extraction and and
0: they got them
2: quicker yeah and it, and it rocked
0: and it rocked <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> we still we still get uh Letters and calls and emails from people in Europe who want to know about the sonic maturation, and uh, but we're we're not doing it anymore because uh, after our fire we had a little fire a few years ago, and after the fire we removed all electrical sources from anywhere we were storing whiskey. We thought that might be a fire hazard to
1: start, but again, we were learning as we went.
2: <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't burn the place down. <laughs>
0: Is that is there is there any other that's a good story? I mean, well, glad nobody was hurt, right? So hopefully it's
2: a good. Nobody was hurt. We didn't lose any product. Right. In fact, we gained a product. Um, We we there was no structural damage, and we had a great insurance policy, so we were able to actually come back in better condition than when we started. Right. But we made um, when I when the fire started, there was nobody in the room. He had just the person who was running the sill had just stepped out, but I had just finished filling a hundred barrels, small barrels, threes, fives, and tens, and labeled them. And then the fire broke out. And when we went in the room afterwards, none of the barrels had broken, but they had all completely charred black on the outside. Wow. So we didn't know what was in them because the labels burnt off all the barrels. Right. So we just had them set it aside. <clears throat> I said, "Put put those away. Don't don't dump them." So uh, we put them away, and on the second anniversary of the uh, fire, we blended them all together yes. in a big tank and just bottled it up as our double charred Hudson. Right. I remember and that. Uh, that I weird. think we had a three, about three thousand bottles, and that was it. Right. It wasn't so. great.
0: Historic <laughs> <laughs> though.
2: <It> wasn't. <laughs> <great>. <laughs>
1: But it was a, it was definitely a commemorative batch. I right. still have a bottle of it in my, uh, in my, uh, in my collection. I've got a cool, cool collection of. Collection. <laughs>
0: any other uh, fun? Not, not a fun, but any other mistakes that ended up you learning something from? That uh, any other good stories to tell? I mean, the fire is a pretty big one, but any others that are? Yeah, I was on the
1: road at that moment. I was in Boston. and I called. <laughs> I was uh, still, you know, in bed from the night before, and uh, my wife said, "It's it's
0: it's gone. What
1: are you talking about?" Uh, and you know, it, it, no structural damage. I, I'm really, I don't know, was is that right? And the roof, yeah, no off. structural damage. The roof blew up. It was a, it was a. I mean, thank God nobody was was hurt. It was uh, there were people downstairs in the building, but nobody was up there. And this is, uh, this, is
2: this is the double
0: charred whiskey. I remember this. Yes. Yeah. Double chard. I thought it was pretty tasty. I never tried that. It was very nice. I liked it.
2: I thought it was really good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, if I was when I was selling it afterwards, I would say – I'd hand it to somebody and say, I hope I never get to sell this to you again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty good. And if it, and sometimes you'll go into a small retailer in the middle of nowhere, and you'll find one on the shelf. Wow.
0: The, uh, the Empire Rye, that's something that's uh, – in the last several years is um, fairly new. Talk about that, which is, I think, very special for New York and, and what you all have done.
2: Yeah, actually, um, a group of us got together, I think the first year, it was six people, six distillers, and um, we all got together. We agreed on certain parameters for a New York rye, empire rye. We incorporated the group as the New York rye, Empire Rye Association, and invited other distillers to join. And the uh, spirit had to qualify as a, as a New York spirit, that is to say, had to be at least 75% New York goods, had to be in a barrel three years, which was our own little, there's no other requirements in law about how long it's in the barrel, but we decided that we wanted it to be three years. And uh, we decided on a logo and the whole thing, and then everybody set about making their rye, And three years down the road, we introduced it and uh, got the governor to sign a proclamation uh, declaring Empire Rye, New York's rye whiskey. And uh, it's been very successful. And 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 it's it's something that a lot of areas, regions have been wanting to do. And that is what's the fine common thread between all of them that they can promote. And so this gave all of us something really unique to to promote with our whiskeys. Right. And and our Manhattan rye met the criteria anyway, so if, if we didn't have to worry about it.
1: <laughs> what are the what, what is the criteria? Is it two years? It's got to be straight for three years.
2: Three years. It's got to be in oak, in oak for three years. and it can't. It has to be made in the distillery that's bottling it. It can't be a blend of other people's goods.
0: Do you see the uh, other states going towards that kind of model, finding ways to actually really own a? a-
2: uh, a category like, like New York has? Is that something that you think will happen more of? We'll see more? I think it will happen more. Uh, it, it will take a little while longer now because of this situation with the virus and the, the shutdown and everything. Right. Uh, you know, People will take a while for everybody to gear their operations back up. And the people who are trying to put together these sort of coalitions, they'll have to rebuild them again. Right. So that's going to take some time. But I, I know that there are other states that are trying to come up with um, a signature beverage for them and that they all can agree on. Uh, we were fortunate when we started, there were only six of us that were, and we just went ahead. We didn't care what anybody else was doing. Um, whereas now, because there are so many more people involved in each state, it's harder to determine, uh, to decide on criteria everyone can accept. Right. You know, it's, uh, you know, like when we started, if you put a bunch of distillers in the room, it was a room full of know-it-alls. Because they're they're all doing it their way, right? And you know you can't really tell them how to do it. And and now there are nineteen hundred distilleries across the country. That's a lot of know it alls. It's hard to get people to decide on on one thing. Um, but it is happening. It is happening. And I notice I notice a lot of uh, the distilleries in Texas are advertising Texas whiskey, Texas uh, spirit. And that's a start. That's the way to start.
0: I actually bring it
2: from that state, and then get a little bit more specific as far as what, right? You know, go, agree on something. Agree on a formula, a basic, generic formula that everybody can use, and then go and make it, and and put it together. At you know, we were very fortunate at Christopher Williams. Uh, he's running. Um, Copper Sea. Copper seed Distillery in New Paltz. He took on the job of organizing the whole thing. He got the governor to to sign a uh, proclamation. Uh, He got the week declared rye week when we introduced it, things like that. And it it needs to have, just as with the Farm Distillery Act, it needs to have somebody who's focused on it. In the case of the Empire Rye, uh, Christopher was really focused on it and did most of the work. Keeping it organized and keeping it moving forward. So, uh, if if other states, if other distillers in other states want to do something like that, somebody's got to get up and actually do the work. Right. You know, it well, isn't going to yeah, happen yeah. just because everybody's sitting in a room. <laughs> no,
0: it's, that's that's uh, that's very true. I mean, there's so many much we have to thank you all both for for uh, for craft spirits and for what you've done in in so many ways. Um, as as the years have gone along, as craft distilling has grown. I'm sure the question that you all have, have been asked for several years is, you know, what do you see it as far as a future of craft distilling, uh, of craft whiskey? How much has that uh, answer changed uh, since we've had the coronavirus? Or has it changed at all? What's, what, what, do you, what do you see in the future?
2: Well, I think everybody's going to be caught up in the general uh, refurbishing of the American economy. Right. So that's going to take some time. Uh, The biggest change I see overall is that um, small distillers, successful distillers are getting picked up by larger companies. That's a lot of consolidation going on. Right. Uh, Which was, you know, sort of the argument we used with the folks at Discus, the big producers in the beginning when we were trying to convince them not to treat us the way that the big beer producers treated the craft beer producers. They just tried to push them out of the way. Uh, and my comment to the big producers was always, "We're not your—we're not your competition. We're your next acquisition target, and and you won't have to spend five years developing a brand because you can buy one that's already popular and take it from there." And so I see a lot of that is starting to happen. You know, we weren't the only ones in the last couple of years to be acquired by a major house, um, and and that's going to continue to happen. Also, the other thing is that I've noticed is that when we started and when the others of our ilk started, we were generally self-funded and we built everything ourselves and we scrounged for everything we could get to make our business work. Whereas now it, the concept is already proven. It does work. And with the right kind of funding to start it up and the right kind of business expertise backing it up, uh, it's requiring that people starting distilleries have a lot more capital. There's, there's not much room anymore for people to do what we did, right? You would need even more capital to start now than you would would have back then. Oh God, yeah. Oh yes. Uh, distilleries are being built now that start out with hundred thousand gallon a year capability, right? Uh, and so, and, and funding, J- just the funding alone, that uh, which is going to be a little bit difficult, I think, going forward. But it nevertheless. It's uh, moving more towards well-funded operations. I mean, So the marketing, the competition, the demand, is it everything? Yeah. All that. Okay. Yeah. You know, to, to get a brand successful now, when we started, we'd walk into a liquor store. We were the only New York spirit in the store. Now there's a whole wall dedicated to the 180 distillers in New York. There's so many. Yeah.
1: it was interesting to see during this time this you know COVID time um first of all that distilleries or liquor stores were considered essential um and also that uh distilleries quickly realized that they had something that everybody needed and were able to make that shift so quickly uh and i think that yes you're going to see a lot of businesses go under after this all clears but i think that the ones that'll be around afterwards are the ones who are able to quickly pivot into doing something else, um, and sanitizer is not uh, going to be, you know, bringing home bacon for everybody, you know, for the forever. But I think that people are starting to realize that well, I got this still, and I'm producing alcohol, and alcohol is a, a commodity—not um, just beverage alcohol, but it's something that, uh, that in all different situations can be, um, can be used for different. Different, and very important um, uses. So I, w- I was really proud of the industry to see so many people step in, and I'm sure everybody's sick of hearing about distilleries making sanitizer at this point. But uh, I mean, it's amazing that uh, that so many people did that so quickly, and um, you know, particularly the ones who find bottles. You know, as all oh, your distillers out there know, we got plenty of ethanol. You now glycerin's not that hard. It's not that hard to find uh, hydrogen peroxide, but bottles—that's really tough. So if anybody out there has a bottle company or is sitting on a you know trailer full of eight ounce to sixteen ounce bottles, you know, send up to your local distillery so that they can put sanitizer in them. And uh, as far as I've seen, nobody is gouging. You know, everybody is trying to do it right. A lot of people are giving it away. I mean, I would say half of what I've made so far has been given away, um, and I know some of the other distilleries doing the same thing. I think it's really uh, exciting to see that. And I'm sure that the ones who have done that are going to be the ones who are still there when this all takes out.
0: But the bottles were the toughest part. And that's what you guys still need more of are bottles.
2: Yes. Yeah. Wow. yeah for, for everybody else, it's face masks and uh, ventilators. And for the distillers, it's bottles.
0: It's bottles. Wow. Yeah. That's really something. Well, something, some news that uh, I think that, that was just, a, you just announced here in the last several weeks, Ralph. Uh, you are officially you call you- you're retired still doing a little bit with the whiskey bread but you're you're retired is that right I, i'm
2: uh i happily enjoying my laziness <laughs> and uh i i'm catching up on my napping time um i haven't really latched on to a new project i think that i mean my career has been project oriented right and so i was this was this was a, a real desperate attempt to make some money, this particular project, the distillery. And happily, it, it did what I wanted it to do. And now I'm just trying to take some time to do nothing but read and uh, play with Gabe's kids and hang out at home. It's it's kind of nice. Yeah, so, but
1: I'm going to be pulling him into the uh, the Hudson House project.
2: <laughs> making some whiskey. There's no rest for the wicked.
0: So enjoy it while you can, Ralph. It sounds like there'll be a... Much more ahead for you both, and if, if people want to learn more about um, both of these, well, all, everything that you're doing, Gable, are they are they able to order some of your spirits online, or is it just?
1: So uh, we're not we're not currently in our spirits. Um, I'm I'm actually low on everything right now. I've, like I've said, I've shifted gears and I've been uh, I've been making I've been a short order cook for the past uh, two months and making sanitizer in my off time. So um, I don't have much to sell, I'm not selling. I Now, thanks to New York, we can actually ship uh, in state. So um, there may be a, a time, quick, very soon that we can sell the, that we're gonna be shipping the Speakeasy Motors American Whiskey. But uh, for right now, um, I'm really just all consumed with uh, keeping this place afloat and uh, making sanitizer and making masks.
0: And those masks, which you will sign at some point. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's really, it's really a pleasure to chat with you both and to hear what you're up to now, and to really take a look back and a look forward at what's next uh, for you both and in craft distilling. It's such an important conversation to have. And if anybody has tuned in during this and you've only gotten part of it, go back. or are keeping it up on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter permanently, and we're going to have another one of these wonderful chats with new guests Every night, that's right, every night, Sundays, Saturdays, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, bourbonblog.com forward slash live is the place to find this, and uh, we'll keep doing this um, as long as the quarantine lasts, and and maybe even beyond, uh, as soon as I can get back on the road and start – Pouring a whiskey, doing my whiskey education again, I will. Uh, but for now, it's great to be uh, educating everybody watching about some great whiskeys and great new things you guys are doing. So thank you all very much. You, you mean a lot to me and the industry, and and I appreciate your all's uh, friendship uh, over the years and support. It's, it's great to have a, a sip with you all tonight.
2: Thank you, Tom.
0: It's Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ralph. And hopefully we'll see you uh, soon in the near future for a drink and the rest of you watching uh, for a drink. As well so y'all stay safe and cheers cheers all right guys thank you so much for this